Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Save for Later from Guardian Australia, a podcast about internet culture and the tabs our brains just can't close. I'm Michael Sun. And I'm Alex Gorman. Today on the show, cooking videos have long filled our feeds, but are they feeding our souls? Crazy amounts of cream cheese, crazy amounts of bacon, everything fried, covered in flaming hot Cheetos. And at times I did wonder, is this really what I want to do with my life? But first... Michael, it's never far from the discourse. The debate has been raging online for years and years. Why is the bin chicken the perfect bird to represent Australia? Because the bin chicken is the ultimate survivalist. Embrace the bin chicken like all of us have. (laughs) We are a nation of bin chickens on the greatest nation on earth and we should have the bin chicken as our representative. And now the bird we hate to love and love to hate is back in the headlines. They're singing in the rain, they're loving the rain in Sydney, they're eating earthworms, they're eating bugs. Now, as a joke, but maybe not as a joke. Jokes aside, the proposal by the tourism minister for a bin chicken to become our Olympic mascot doesn't have everyone laughing. The bin chicken has been nominated to be the mascot of the Brisbane Olympics. Michael, I know you've got an opinion on this bird. I will just note that um, you use the phrase love to hate and hate to love. I would describe my relationship with this bird as more like hate to love and hate to hate. As with too many things these days, my take is there are too many takes. I feel like I come on this show every week and I'm just like becoming this absolute Grinch where I'm like, stop talking, stop discoursing, stop sharing your takes. We get it. It's an ibis. We get it. It's a bin chicken, whatever. It is ugly. It's ecologically vital. I see all the points, blah, 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 blah. blah. I feel like the discourse is chuggy. But truly, like, it's because the ibis is so inescapable, right? It's, it's been around as a bird for thousands of years, and so has the discourse, it feels like. I first encountered the ibis back in my uni days when it was all over my Facebook feed. Like, it was the golden age of the Facebook group. I was part of this group called Ibis Appreciation Society on Facebook. It was the backbone of, like, every university society's meme output. But, Michael, that's the entire point. The chuginess is the point of the ibis. It is the body McBoat face of birds, the Bunnings sausage sizzle of the avian kingdom. The point about ibises is that they're so basic that they're omnipresent, which makes them really easy grist for the joking mill. Like, it speaks to this kind of larrikin Australianism where we think that it's very funny to joke that our national emblem is an animal that has a beautiful bald head so that it can 
dip its beak into a rubbish bin and wolf down the contents. The disgustingness of the ibis is sort of a symbol of national pride in the same way that New York's pizza rat is a symbol of city pride. It's that kind of urban adapter, it's funny because it's gross thing that you see every day, which makes it really easy media fodder. Ibises, much like eating, pooping and going to the grocery store, are a thing that most Australians have to engage with at some point in their life. So it's just a very lowest common denominator animal to have an opinion on. And that's why the discourse rages. And that's why I resent it. Because I feel like it's it's just so... I feel like it's, it's almost so lazy to use the Ibis as the starting point for your joke or your meme because it is, as you said, so lowest common denominator. It's just become this ironic shorthand for this whole genre of like quintessential Australiana. I'm talking, you know, like Brown Cardigan, of course, who love the Ibis, that famous purveyor of Australian memes who have built their name amongst other things off the back of the Ibis. I see so much content of just like Ibises dipping their heads into bins. Like to me, it feels very lazy. Yeah, I can remember the Ibis as kind of a classic ironic art symbol sort of in the early 2010s. I'm thinking like Etsy handcrafted pins of ibises or the artists painting like very detailed, beautiful watercolours of ibises. Like people find them legitimately inspiring in their trash animal status. And I think that's quite fun. I mean, thinking back to 2017 when the Ibis, the Ibis had already <laughs> run its course, we had two fabulous Ibis texts. First, there was the parody of Planet Earth, Bin Chicken, which was surprisingly well shot. Life survives in the harshest environments on planet Earth, searing deserts to frozen Arctic tundra. However, there are more toxic places our cities. Featuring, like, quite loving footage of ibises. Scientists have now confirmed what many Australians have believed for decades. Once known as the white ibis, the species has evolved into a superior scavenger. And that was also the year that the IBIS lobby attempted to hijack Guardian Australia's Bird of the Year poll. I'm literally like, like, I can feel a migraine coming on. I'm shaking my head. I'm rubbing my forehead at the thought of so many people being so passionate about this that they form a legion to invade the Guardian Australia Bird of the Year poll. I'm like, do better things with your time. Like... That classic saying where it's like, let people enjoy things. I'm very much like, let people enjoy nothing. So you're telling me that you didn't have even the tiniest swell of local pride when, say, Kate McKinnon blessed the Ibis on American television. There was my first day there. I was walking on the street and I saw what I thought was the most beautiful bird I've ever seen in my life. Like this gigantic thing with a beautiful white plumage and a, a long, elegant beak. That's and what like, I knew it was over when international celebrities are literally, quite literally swooping in and co-opting the Ibis for their own clout. That's when I know it's gone too far. Oh my God, I, I've been blessed here. Yes. This is a sight. And I asked um, some guy that I ran into, I was like, what is this, this gorgeous bird? And he was like, oh, that's a bin chicken. And I feel like it's the result, as we were talking earlier about this whole like me 
media storm around the Ibis where it's the BuzzFeeds, the pedestrians of the world, just constantly... Don't forget the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail. They love love a cooked Ibis. Constantly posting and posting and posting this sort of content that I would describe as Ibis clickbait. You know that if you post a picture of an Ibis, a meme of an Ibis, a video of one doing some random stuff, it is going to get the clicks. And I think that's proof that it's now over. It's become such a cynical way to get attention and almost almost a cash grab, I would say. I strongly disagree. I think that providing the basics with their bird content is a vital public service and long may it rain. You know what? Maybe I think I just have this level of cultural cringe towards the Ibis. And to preface this, like, I'm someone who literally, when I'm scrolling on TikTok, I'll actively get my For You page to hide any person with an Australian accent. Like, that's how bad my cultural cringe is. Yeah, I also heard you refer to Pizza Rat as a handsome gentleman off mic. I mean, true. I I mean... I do feel like the, the, the New York City rat, as chuggy as he is, is an incredibly handsome boy um, who I'm proud to call my future husband. But the ibis, on the other hand, just feels so chuggy to me. You called it the budding sausage sizzle of birds. I would go further and say that it's the bubble bill of birds. It's the Vegemite discourse of birds. It's that kind of national conversation that has lodged itself so deeply into the most hateful section of my mind <laughs> for no reason other than my own cringe. Look, Michael, I think you just need to discuss your cultural cringe in therapy because the Ibis is not going anywhere. I mean, their close relative, the sacred Ibis, was mummified in the thousands in ancient Egypt. They have been here long before we have. They will be here long after civilization falls. Ibis discourse makes me feel ancient. Next, my therapist, I mean, my favourite YouTube cook, stops by to talk us through the history of viral cooking videos. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Alex, on the show today, you know that I talked to you so much, you specifically, about this YouTube series called Budget Eats. It's like two-hour-long videos of this incredible cook called June Shear just taking 25 bucks and making a week's worth of meals. I would say I watch it almost as like self-soothing at 1am when I can't sleep. Like I'm addicted to this show. Well, I'm very happy to announce that we actually have special guest June Shear herself here to talk to us today about how she went from making these videos for Delish with millions of views to making live streams which go to a darker, more vulnerable place. June, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And I am very embarrassed to know that people who work in journalism actually watch my live streams. (laughs) 
And Ju, just before we talk about yourself, we need to go through the long and winding history of food videos and how we even ended up here in the first place. We've all seen these videos. If you are me, you've tried to copy them and failed. Alex, you used to work in food media making this content. What was your experience like? Uh, my my experience is mostly trauma. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I spent a couple of years um, in my previous role at Time Out making food videos. And my goodness, it was very hard work, uh, required a whole lot of attention to detail, a whole lot of forward planning, and a whole lot of effort to go into things that ultimately need to be quite short and fun. At least that was the purpose of ours. And I think the kinds of food videos that I'm, I was making are probably a good place to kick us off. I'm going to take us back to the year 2015 when the pivot to video was on everyone's mind and BuzzFeed launched a little sub-brand that soon became a very dominant brand called Tasty. June, how would you describe a Tasty video? Um, I would say the OG Tasty video is like the epitome, gold standard of hands and pans cooking video. Okay, I have to start with this because I've always wondered how the beef and beef broccoli got so soft. And it's baking soda. It helps to tenderize the meat. We're going to let that sit for like 30 minutes. Really succinct, really fast paced, but still very detail oriented. And it kind of takes you through the beginning to the middle to the end for about 20 seconds we still want it crunchy and everything always comes out looking fantastic even though their videos are anywhere from 30 seconds to 60 seconds um and it makes you feel like you too can make food just as easily and just as prettily you know what they say if it's not broke don't fix it cheers For those playing along at home and because the first few times I used the phrase hands in pans at my old office, they thought I was saying hands in pants, Mm -hmm. um, we should explain what a hands in pans video is, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So a hands in pans is literally a video in which you only see the hands coming in to handle the food, cook the food, manipulate the food, whatever you want to call it, and you only see the cooking instruments that they use. So pans, pots, bowls, whisks. You don't see a person, there is no head, there is no body, it's just hands. And so it's always filmed in this kind of first-person perspective where if you were to look down at your own hands, that's kind of what you would see on screen is you can pretend that it's your hands doing the cooking. And then if you are to zoom out on a hands in pans video, what you will see is a very elaborate rig suspending either a smartphone or a very fancy camera over the top of a cooking bench. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of cantilevered, grand designs esque setup. <laughs> These videos were all the rage, as you said, in in the kind of like mid-2010s. It felt like one morning I just woke up and my entire Facebook feed was just dominated with these kinds of videos. And it almost felt as if it was ushering in this like new era in food media, right? Because I think up to then, and especially in like the 90s, early 2000s, it was like the era of the celebrity chef. It was like all these like British chefs, like Jamie, Gordon, Nigella, they were who you turned to, um, whatever genre of food you were cooking to kind of like have a look at what to do. But then here, it it gets rid of the person altogether. Was Do you think that this was almost kind of like an intentional choice to propagate that idea, like to quote Ratatouille, that anyone can cook? I mean, I don't know because I only joined food media when I was uh, burning out of the restaurant industry. So that was in early 2018 that I joined Delish. 
And I think Tasty and Delish shared a lot of the same characteristics in terms of churning out those hands and pans cooking videos. And very much from a Delish point of view, we do want to make the audience feel like they too can be a cook and a very proficient cook at that. So I think that kind of first person perspective with the hands and pans was definitely trying to get at that feeling of you are capable. See, you're already doing it just by watching. When a cooking video is so, so compressed, when it lasts 30 seconds to 60 seconds, do you think that that's something that people cook to or is it more a video as entertainment? I think it's a bit of both, which is why it's so successful and why people gravitate towards it. It's at the same time reality and not, right? Because there's a huge manipulation of time there. Yes, you are cooking this recipe from start to finish. When we shoot one of these, it takes us anywhere from an hour to two hours, depending on the complexity of the recipe. However, the fact that you are speeding through the footage by fast forwarding through it and just crunching that, you know, 30 minute time in the baking oven into like a split second of trays gone, trays back, food's here, um, certainly gives people this idea that like cooking is way easier than it actually is. If anybody took a look behind the scenes at what goes into filming one of these, I mean, they would probably think twice about making that recipe. So we're talking an hour to two hours of just the kind of cooking that you speed through. I don't know. It's just you don't see any of the struggle behind some of the more viral recipes, I would say, just like ridiculous Frankenstein recipes of a pie inside a cake, inside a donut, inside a bagel, inside a I don't know. Um, but those are monstrous recipes, both in their final form. They are monstrous and in their creation, terribly monstrous. I don't know why we ever decided to do that, but I guess, you know, it gets us the numbers, it gets us the views, it gets us the eyeballs, which in turn means ad revenue. So who doesn't like a little bit of extra money? I mean, it, it definitely does feel like in digital media, there's that sense that it needs to keep going up and up and up and you need to add more and more and more because eventually people get used to the same thing and then they want to see an even worse Frankenstein creation. Um, I would almost describe a lot of these meals as like stoner meals on crap <laughs> um, where it's like you're putting everything you're going to eat when stoned into like one giant tadakan. <laughs> um, yes. But then it still somehow looks kind of pretty but also monstrous. That reminds me of kind of almost an earlier era of food video, um, back when, you know, YouTube was really in its nascent days. There were lots of just like individual creators trying new things, literally throwing things, food at the walls. I'm, of course, talking about epic mealtime. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Online cooking show. Got the magnum of Jack Daniels about to change the game. What you know about cooking? Breakfast. Wake up. Wake the f*** up. That channel started in 2010. I think that had a big impact on my upbringing and it's why the way I am now, um, aka insane. About to make a dangerous chili. What you know about that? Previous level safety conscious cooking shows? You ain't got what we got. Did we all watch <laughs> these kinds of videos back in the day of like just people doing <sighs> the most insane things? I wish I, wish I didn't. <laughs> uh, every time I saw a new episode drop, I, for some reason, would watch it to the end. And every time afterwards, it was, it gave me the feeling of like you, the guiltiness of watching porn sometimes too. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know why I just watched all of that. I don't even think I enjoyed it. And also I have lost complete, complete trust in humanity and faith in humanity. 
Yeah, as someone who comes from a restaurant background and I imagine cares passionately about making food that tastes good, how do these extreme food videos make you feel? Disgusting. Is there any other way they were meant to make you feel? I just don't think so. I don't think anybody wants to eat that much bacon under that much cheese stuffed into that many donuts. Um, What else did they use? Was it like huge amounts of hot sauce or barbecue sauce? Like sauce. The way they said sauce. And pouring booze into everything they could think of. Ah, yes. I once heard a rumor they were secretly underwritten by a bourbon company. I would not be surprised. I just don't, I don't know what the intended value in it was except to shock and it sure did, but it got old after a while. And I feel like the people involved in creating that kind of content also got old and their bodies were like, please no more. And, you know, we got to hit a wall and I am thankful that we hit that wall. Well, I feel like Epic Mealtime is something that, you know, slots really neatly into Alex, you were talking about the two different categories of food video, which are um, educational versus entertainment. Epic Mealtime, obviously, quote-unquote, entertainment only. But then it kind of gets co-opted later into the decade by something like Bon Appetit, right, where where they take that very scrappy YouTube style but actually apply it to a giant media corporation and turn it into a much more slick product. Yes, I think so. Uh, I mean, Bon Appetit also operates on a... I would say they operate on a classier level. Um, It gives me the vibe of, like, very much well-off-to-do, urbanite, young, business professional. I have the means to spend $80 at Calustian's on very specialized culinary ingredients that are not available elsewhere at your normal supermarket. I would say working at Delish, we serve a different kind of audience for sure. But even at Delish, we definitely see the rain down effects of stuff like Epic Mealtime, just Crazy amounts of cream cheese, crazy amounts of bacon, everything fried, covered in flaming hot Cheetos. And at times I did wonder, is this really what I want to do with my life? So something that's kind of interesting about the contrast between those hands in pans videos and then the more sort of YouTube style is that the YouTube style involves actual human anchors and personalities and does actually mean that if you have an existential crisis about whether or not (laughs) you should be putting flaming hot Cheetos as a crumb on a chicken schnitzel, you can see the pain in the host's eyes. (laughs) What has it been like to see the personality, I guess, come back into making videos about food? I mean, I think that's the pull of YouTube, right? YouTube audiences thrive on consuming the personality behind the content. It's never just about the recipe. It's never just about the history. It's about who's presenting it and how they're presenting it and how, in a way, they present their content as a part of their own identity. And I think that's what people really gravitate towards. Let's talk about Budget Eats, um, which is that series where we're talking about now, um, where you have been filming yourself, directing yourself on camera. Hello, and welcome back to Budget Eats, this time, Food Pantry Edition. You ready for this? I'm not really ready, but I will lie to you and say that I am. First things first, let's prep some items. Whenever I get bananas, I like to tear open the bag and... Tell us about the circumstances around the creation of that, because I know that at first, Delish... Um, had some hesitancies around whether it would fit into the Delish brand. But then eventually, of course, the experiment, if you will, paid off during the pandemic. Um, 
Budget Eats was pitched to me by my friend Devin, who consumed a lot of Bon Appetit cooking video content and said, you know, they never talk about what to do with the remaining ingredients that you buy for one single recipe. You buy a whole jar of tahini. What do you do with the rest of it? So what if you made content for like working millennials who don't have an unlimited budget to buy random ingredients and just did your grocery haul for the week and then used up everything until you were done? And I was like, that's that's a really awesome idea. This tomato is already starting to go a little bad, so I think I want to go ahead and use this up. But what do we want to make? Because we do have bread this time around, the first thought that came to mind was a BLT. But obviously we don't have bacon or lettuce, although we do have cabbage. Unfortunately, we didn't get to that until the pandemic hit and we started scrambling for content ideas because we couldn't collaborate on sets anymore. And our director of video now, Julia Smith, was like, I remember you being interested in Budget Eats. Do you still want to do it? And I was like, sure. What else is there to do? Let's do it. And that's how I started. The first episode was shot on my cell phone. And I I gave our poor video editor about 11 hours of footage. <laughs> which if you watch the first episode of Budget Eats, it he slimmed it down to 38 minutes. I do think that I broke him as a result of that. <laughs> Nobody told me how to shoot this. Nobody told me just grab three, four seconds of a single cooking scene. I just let my cell phone roll until the battery ran out and died and the phone overheated. Um, so it was a learning experience for all of us. Obviously, these videos aren't 11 hours long, but they are, especially for kind of, I guess, a more traditional food media outlet long. How do you keep people entertained and engaged? And just quick side note, I would watch 11 hours. We've had so many people say, just give us the unedited footage. <laughs> Stop taking so long and putting out these videos. We also have comments like, doesn't this girl have 15 minute videos anywhere? Um, to your question, I don't know how we keep people engaged. I just shoot the days as they go on. And I think the content kind of unravels in such an organic and strange and unpredictable and unfiltered way that people are just like, I have to see what's going to happen tomorrow because she only has eggs and like a handful of broccoli and some <laughs> leftover sweet potatoes. Like what in the world can she possibly make with those? It's like a master chef challenge every day. <laughs> it, it's like that. And, and, and I feel like there, there definitely is the survival element. I think sometimes watching your videos can feel like watching a show like alone or something where it's like, how can this person do it? It's almost like an endurance challenge. Mm -hmm. um, but then at the same time, you also get so many um, people in the comments professing how you've changed their entire outlook on cooking and their approach to food wastage and food sustainability, I guess. It's fascinating. It's fascinating because you're right. So many people have written in to say I changed their way of cooking. But to me, this is always just the way that I cooked. I grew up in an immigrant Chinese household. Written recipes was not a thing at all. And I have the story of being in a third grade. I immigrated here in the second half of second grade, so I barely knew English at this point in the third grade. My mom didn't know English either. I was given a homework assignment of contributing a family recipe to the class cookbook. My mom and I stood up maybe until 3 or 4 a.m. trying to write a recipe in Chinese and then translating it into broken English to the best of our abilities. And I handed it in next day, dead tired. 
And I remember the teacher, Mrs. Magner, calling me over in the middle of the day and just like gesturing to my recipe and shaking her head. And I understood at that point, even not knowing English, that she wasn't able to accept the recipe because one, English wasn't good on that on that recipe. And two, my mom and I probably wrote all the amounts in metric system. And the U.S. <laughs> runs on ounces, tablespoons, cups, which was just like not in our knowledge to do so. So it's really, really ironic that I work in food media now and develop recipes for a living. (laughs) The experience that you've described is actually very similar to a lot of people I know and have read interviews with who develop recipes for a living, which is that they don't actually cook to recipes themselves that much. Their cooking style is much more intuitive. Now that you do develop recipes for a living, like what do you take from your own intuitive cooking style to make a recipe that will function for someone who is more, I guess, by the book? I mean, I I came into food media with a strong sense of imposter syndrome. Um, I had worked in restaurants for four and a half years, so I wasn't new to cooking. But as far as developing recipes, I for the first two years, thought, who am I to develop anything? I didn't grow up with recipes. I don't use recipes like this is a foreign language to me. Intuitive cooking to me is so liberating because there is no way in which you can fail against the standard. You can only fail against your own expectations. So as long as you can negotiate that relationship with yourself to say, hey, this might not be perfect, but it's going to be edible. And at the end of the day, isn't that what food is for? you'll be fine. And it really doesn't matter because you don't have to judge yourself against this image of perfection that food media likes to propagate. And so I think what people found really interesting about Budget Eats is that it broke against all this kind of fairy tale narrative of, well, if you just tried hard enough with the right skills following these exact directions, you too can create perfection. And Budget Eats was just like, nah, screw all of that. Just make whatever you can. You got 25 bucks. You're going to try to stretch it for as long as you can. Just do whatever you need to survive, baby. It feels like Budget Eats is almost like how to approach food as a whole. It's like this whole system of thinking. And it has definitely upended my understanding of like food and cooking as it has many other viewers. Um, And through that, you've almost formed this community of people who are watching your videos and bonding with you parasocially, I guess, but also with each other. Um, What's that community like? I mean, if we're going to talk the Budget Eats community, I feel like as far as the internet goes, they are overwhelmingly positive. For sure, we get critics and people who are very demanding about what kind of diet I should follow next on Budget Eats. But for the most part, (laughs) everybody's very positive. I think the number one criticism we get is, how does she get these prices? All of this would cost 60 to 130 $50 where I live, to which I say, yeah, but I also pay an exorbitant amount on rent. So let's call it even maybe. But the community seems like they're willing to share. I mispronounce things on the show sometimes, but I don't get canceled. I just get corrected. And I'm very grateful for that kind of leniency from the audience because nowadays with Twitter's cancel culture, it's very rare that you see that kind of willing forgiveness. Um, But I love that because I think as long as we're opening up ourselves to being corrected, we can own up to our mistakes. And so I would say the Budget Eats community is like very open, very forgiving, and very willing to teach. 
they're very enthusiastic about being enthusiastic people. Um, so I tend to learn a lot from the comment section. It was so interesting to hear you talk about that idea of not having to be perfect and mm-hmm. showing that food doesn't have to be perfect to be delicious and exciting. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if like maybe that's part of why people are willing to kind of meet you on a very human level because it's not about food as achievement. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like what I go through in Budget Eats is a mirror of life in general. It's We all don't know what we're doing most of the time. We're all just trying to put something on the table and to get through the day and to make it to the next. And we're all just making do with what we have. I remember working at Delish in the summer of 2020 when the BLM movement was at its height and Bon Appetit was slowly burning down because of its pay discrepancy for it's, you know, workers of color who were appearing on camera. We had huge discussions with our food team at Delish regarding how we should name recipes, how we should write recipes, who should be able to write recipes. Um, can we keep doing what we're doing or is it actually just wrong and a facet of white supremacy? Like that was a summer where I feel like all of food media was starting to take food very politically. And I'm not here to say that food isn't political. It certainly can be. Anything can be politicized and anything can have political impact. But for me, that made people so stressed out about something so fundamental and elemental as food. Um, I think there is a place for authenticity, but there is also a place for play. And I feel like to be beholden to the idea of only authentic stuff is acceptable is to take away the joy of cooking and experimentation. And so for me, Budget Eats was a way of saying like, hey, I recognize all these cultures. I recognize all these cool ingredients come from different cultures. I would love to use all of them, but I'm not going to use them quote unquote authentically. I'm just going to use them and see if they taste good. And I'm going to marry them all together and we can have all interracial food babies together. Um, So... (laughs) I don't know. Maybe some people will cancel me on Twitter for that, but. (laughs) Um, I'd love for you to talk about, I guess, the most unedited that you get, which is when you go live. Mm. Hello, Australia. I can't believe that we have over 200 people watching right now. Y'all don't have to be at work? What is that like? (gasps) Eating chippies in bed with cat bacon biscuits on your tum-tum. Lena, that sounds like heaven, truly. I I enjoy it. I, ever since I was a kid, was very much into oversharing. My mom was always very embarrassed about what a big mouth I had. And so I started live streaming, I think, after doing a live stream for Delish. And it was to kind of advertise to our audience that, hey, we have this new print quarterly magazine out and go buy it because I have this kanji and yotia recipe in it. And then on that live... I made the kanji, I made the yotiao, and chatted with people. And then after that, you know, I kept thinking, like, a lot of people are asking on the Budget Eats comments, why doesn't June do her own thing? Maybe she has a contract with Delish that she can't. And I asked Julia, and I was like, do I, do I have a contract with Delish? And she was like, LOL, I don't think any of us have a contract with Delish for video. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to go make my own channel and 
just do live streams on it because at that, I'm still working full time at Delish. I don't have time to shoot my own stuff and edit my own stuff. That takes a lot of time and energy. But I thought doing live streams is easy. You just put your phone on a cheap little tripod, you hit go live, and you're live. And, um, you know, every day I would spend time in the kitchen anyway to make my own food. So I figured, why not just let people in on that time when I'm in the kitchen anyway, doing willy-nilly whatever. And people just started coming in. And I was like, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's funny because when I started live streaming, my my heart wasn't in let's grow my audience and let's let's hit 1 million subscribers and let's you know make an empire i started the live streams because the therapist i was seeing at the time said i needed to be more social or else my depression will like eat me alive <laughs> and i said well we're still in quarantine and i don't feel comfortable hanging out with friends anywhere so I guess we'll have to turn to parasocial relationships with absolute strangers on the internet and see what this brings to my life. And it gave me a sense of structure in my own life of like, it's 6 p.m., get off your computer and stop working because you're going to have to live stream within the next hour because this is a new routine for you so that you can stop overworking. It was a way for me to kind of give myself some time to not be a workaholic because there was nothing else going on in my life. I think during the pandemic, a lot of us started overworking because there was nothing else that we could do to feel human or to feel Mm. useful or productive or anything. So that's how the live stream started. Now they took on a completely different nature as time went on. They became very personal, especially after my mom passed and I used them as a way to not feel alone. Um, And they were very, very much a crutch for me in that moment of just absolute loneliness and despair. Um, So I don't know how I intend my content on my own platform on YouTube. I don't really intend. And I think that's what makes it interesting is I considered going live streaming on my own channel as a form of professional suicide is what I described it because it ruined the perception of people had uh, that people had of me on Budget Eats. Um, I've had quite a few viewers say that after they watch my lives, on which I can be very straightforward, transparent, and absolutely depressing and bleak, that they couldn't watch it anymore because they ruined for them what Budget Eats is. So the kind of professional persona and the personal persona and the conflict and the discrepancy between the two is very interesting to me. Mm. I mean, I don't think people watch my live streams for the cooking content, no. really. I think they watch them for the company because we're all so freaking lonely these days. Uh, but it's fascinating because people do still say they they learn stuff about cooking and about kitchen tools through watching the live streams. And I think, you know, it's just all part of life now. Particularly, like, cooking has this emotional role in people's lives and almost a sort of childhood nostalgia, like a live stream more than any other way of conveying and talking about food mm-hmm. creates the feeling of, like, cooking at your parents' side, how you learn to cook, like cooking within a community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of viewers on my live streams have said it's just like sitting with a friend Mm. in her kitchen. I mean, on some of these live streams, I don't cook. I just eat or snack on stuff or pet my cat 
or I think in one, I just like worked out. It was very strange. I don't know what I was thinking. Honestly, I think the pandemic all did something loopy to us. So that's fine. It's all okay now. Let's normalize it. But I mean, sometimes it's not normal. Like after my mom passed, I spent six hours one day shredding papers that she had kept from 1997. And people watched that. Some people watched it for all five hours. Like, I would ask the viewers, are you okay? Why are are, it's one thing for me to put this on. It's another for you to sit here and watch five hours of a stranger shredding papers. Do you watch live streams? I don't. And in the beginning, I used to replay my own live streams just to read people's comments because the live stream would have a live chat box. But after a while, honestly, it got very taxing. And also, you know, there are some ugly parts of my myself on the live streams that I'm not proud of or, you know, that make me cringe a little bit. And it becomes very difficult to be that transparent to yourself sometimes. But I think the live streams have performed as therapy in a way for me that way it is it held up a mirror to my own ugliness in a lot of ways even the things that you might not be able to willingly share in therapy just comes out organically because the phone is live streaming it's rolling and you know things pop up emotions pop up and you're not able to stop it and that's just how I roll so now it's out into the internet forever and ever and strangers know how I behave now in my worst of times and that's not something you can take back and so in a way I have to own up to those ugly parts of me and then I have to ask myself do I continue doing that it gets very introspective it's it's kind of a mind fuck (laughs) it feels like over the evolution of food videos we've kind of broken down a lot of hierarchical preconceptions you know we've moved away from food as status symbol food as needing to be perfect for example where where do you think is next thematically like what still left is there to deconstruct in our own minds i think there are so many different directions that food media is going into there is the more kind of politically minded and environmentally minded food media that is giving you more history, more background, more expose into the different industries that make up where your food comes from. And then there's the one that is still just trying to continue what has always worked, which is kind of the stand and stir personality presentation type. And then we have the coked up TikTok platform where it's just like wham, bam, entertainment or do you dare try this and it's that third category that I think is still getting the majority of our attention spans because our attention spans are just getting shorter and shorter I think for me though I am gonna turn 33 this year I am too old for that platform like I'm the grow up with Facebook eased into Instagram and dead on arrival for TikTok I'm not pretty enough for TikTok. I'm not like coked up enough for TikTok. I'm not smart with edits on TikTok. I'm just like old school slow, you know? My my knees creak, my joints hurt, and I can feel when rain is coming. June, thank you so much for coming on our silly little internet show to talk about the history of internet food videos um, and sharing a video yourself with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 
Michael, it's almost time to say goodbye. But before we do, I want to know what's been lighting your heart on fire this week? What is top of your list? My top of the list is a show called Severance on Apple TV+. It's partially directed by Ben Stiller. That show gives me anxiety. It gives me anxiety <laughs> as well, don't you worry. And it gives me a specific form of anxiety that's like work anxiety. It's about people who have literally undergone a medical surgery to separate their work and life cells, parts of their brain, but not everything is as it seems in this vaguely hegemonic tech company that they all work for. Um, Episodes are still dropping every Friday. It's so good. You should definitely watch it. And it stars Adam Scott. Alex, what show are you recommending this week for us? Yes, I am also recommending a show and it is also kind of a work show because it is my favourite genre, the glossy, unrealistic magazine fantasy show. It's called Minx. It's set at a feminist porn mag in 1971. There are so many penises on screen. It's almost overwhelming. It is funny. It is silly. It is absolutely not how media functions in any way. And that is why I like it. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, you should absolutely subscribe to Save the Later wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert, Jake Morecambe and Joe Koning, who also handcrafted the music. We're going to be here again next week, working through our tabs once again. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Listen. 